Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Associate Professor Jeremy Garlick, who is also the director of the J. Masaryk Center of International Studies at Prague University of Economics and Business. He is the author of The Impact of China's Belt and Road Initiative from Asia to Europe and the forthcoming Reconfiguring the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, Geoeconomic Pipe Dreams versus Geopolitical Realities. Thank you for joining the podcast. Jeremy, how are things in the Czech Republic? Thank you for inviting me. And um, things in the Czech Republic at the moment, um, it, it's been looking good the last four or five months with the COVID pandemic. Um, but we're all afraid of a you know a new wave coming in the autumn. So we'll see. But uh, at the moment, pretty good. Pretty good. I mean, it's pretty, the lockdown ended and we're, we're doing well. So it's it's fine. Yeah, I, I would think Czech Republic is not at least not a bad place to be uh, locked down. And hopefully things, uh, <laughs> hopefully we can end with this uh, pandemic. So, you know, let's hope for that. Uh, before I get to my first question, uh, let me just again, uh, you know, public, public service announcement, remind listeners to subscribe to the Geopolitics and Empire email list, Telegram, Twitter, and all other platforms, especially because the podcast uh, is censored. And I'm doing this full time now. So your donations are duly appreciated. Uh, now, Professor Garlic, I've, I've inadvertently been doing a number of podcasts uh, on China. I've had guests who sort of promote China's Belt and Road as something like an infrastructure project from heaven that's going to save the world. Others who view China's forays into Africa as benign and necessary for development. Guests who say Brie is effectively dead in the water. And of course, that Brie is about debt trap diplomacy and global hegemony. So we've kind of run uh, the gamut. <laughs> and you readily recognize that making sense of Brie is extremely difficult. You said that you, quote, believe China's initiative is now as it was before the main game in town in terms of a coordinated strategy to transform global affairs. This is particularly the case since the other main contenders in the global great game of the 21st century, US, EU, Russia, Japan, and India, have not yet managed to present coherent visions of how the international order should develop in the face of pressing problems which face humanity, end quote. And I would agree. Uh, so perhaps we could kind of start with your macro view on China and Belt and Road and then look at further aspects of it as well as the surrounding regions and, and countries. Yeah, great, great question. Great, uh, great summary of it. Yeah, you've got this, um, you know, just to go to what, what you were talking about, you've got these uh, polarized views with people saying it's, you know, as you, as you, exactly as you said. I think where I've arrived at, where I started from, was I was in the, the former, you know, I was in the optimist camp. But as I've studied it more and more, I'm, I'm now kind of in a neutral. I'm trying to be in a kind of in the middle somewhere. I'm, I'm, I've moved more towards the middle that I see a lot of problems with it. But at the same time, as you said, I'd still go along with what I said, that it's the only game in town so far. And we, we have to, you know, just to briefly say that we have to with the U.S. government has recognized this, the Biden administration and with the the, the B3W that they, they announced a few months ago, which has not been publicized very much, or they've not really clarified it much. We have to wait and see whether they are going to come up with something which which is a, a, a rival to the Belt and Road. But at the, so far, the Belt and Road is the main kind of infrastructure connectivity initiative, trying, trying to transform you know connections especially across asia but even going to europe and africa and they, they of course they've extended it to the whole world which i think is a kind of uh, a mistake because they should just really stay focused on the asian region and the connectivity to europe and maybe with east africa on the maritime route so this is what i kind of focus on because i'm aware that 
you know, Latin America or the Arctic have also been, they've also kind of partially included in the Belt and Road, but I don't really focus on those because I'm, I'm focused on the, what I think is the core of it, which is the, the regional connectivity in Asia, maybe going to the Middle East, of course, getting to Central and Eastern Europe and Europe in because the landmass is connected. Um, yeah, so to you know, I think uh, you know as, as you as you quoted me saying there, which uh, you know, I'm glad I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I don't remember that quote, but that's a that's a that's it's a it's a good it's a, a good one. I think you know the problems that face us are not really being addressed by the West. I mean, they're not being addressed clearly, right? I mean, we we really need to focus on coordinated policy regarding the environment. We really need to focus on alleviating. Uh, poverty and encouraging development in the in, in the developing world in, in a lot of countries that are very poor. Uh, and I, I think one of the reasons why Westerners maybe don't get this is because they haven't really experienced it. I mean, they've grown up in privileged countries like me. I grew up in England. We had roads, we had railways. I mean, obviously there's problems with it, but we had we had infrastructure, we had stocked supermarkets. We, we didn't have all these kind of existential problems that people have in a lot of countries. And I've traveled quite widely in Asia and, and there are countries in Asia with extremely poor infrastructure. If I mention Mongolia, for example, where I, was, I traveled across Mongolia, and they've really only got one track of a railway that just goes from China up to Russia and that's it. They haven't got any rail connections. They've got a, a road that goes from Ulaanbaatar up to a former Russian uh, mining city. And then the road just runs out and we went on further and the bus is just going through grassland. I mean, there's no road, you know? So you've got countries like that that really don't have any infrastructure. And I think people don't get in the West that you know, how can a country like Mongolia develop without that infrastructure? It really can't go any further, you know? And then if, you know, a country like Cambodia is the same thing, you know, lack of infrastructure, Laos, needs more work on it, you know, and <clears throat> some some countries have better infrastructure, some countries have worse, but generally not well connected. You know, I, I cross borders, you know, I cross the border from Cambodia to Vietnam, really shocking border that there's no road on one side, road on the other, it's just not well connected. So I think the Chinese, what they, the vision, at least as, as I took it at the beginning, was a vision of improved connectivity, of enhancing transport links, with the aim of trying to encourage increased trade, bilateral trade between China and other countries to try to improve. Obviously, the Chinese want to improve their own situation. They want to create new business opportunities for their companies uh, because they have overcapacity in the domestic arena and they have, you know, they have too many construction companies, for example. So they need to do something with those construction companies. So it suits them to find business for those companies in, in other countries to export some of that excess capacity. But at the same time, I take it it's a vision of bringing benefits to other countries. That's where they, they've, they've often talked about win-win cooperation. And I think they mean it as, you know, we build, we help to build up your economy. You work on building up your economy and that will benefit us as well. We'll have more markets for our companies. So it's of course, it benefits us. We're not doing this selflessly. It's for our benefit, but it's also going to benefit you. So that's kind of how I took the, the Belt and Road Initiative in, in the initial stages. And I, I still think that vision of it, it is a good one. 
the, the problems come because uh, obviously <clears throat> politics tends to intervene and we tend to, the, the whole thing tends to get politicized and it, it has been you know politicized from the western side that is seen as a threat it's seen as a chinese attempt to take over the world or expand their influence and i think you know i'm not going to say that's wrong because i think that there's a lot of uh, truth to that you know the chinese obviously are trying to increase their influence networks they're trying to get more countries to support them in un votes for example um you know they're trying to get countries to to move away from supporting taiwan to move supporting china which they've gradually had success with over the years as more and more countries are shifting from taiwan to china and fewer and fewer countries are supporting taiwan so there are all these kind of political aspects to it as well that that uh, have kind of i would say blunted the, the the initial vision of the belt and road uh plus you know a lot of uh, a lot of uh, kind of failings in the belt and road where we tend to we tend to see you know the possibility of white elephant projects or badly badly uh, planned projects or projects that are, in, are damaging the environment like too much emphasis on coal mines or or you know in Pakistan there's this quite a, there's some chinese investment in coal mines which uh, again is you know would be seen as environmentally a negative thing on the other hand you know pakistan pakistan suffers from blackouts they don't have enough energy the energy supplies are not are not good where does pakistan get its energy from right so coal is one of the obvious you know short to medium term answers before you can set up enough uh, kind of solar solar energy or wind energy or some other kind of environmental environmentally friendly energies so we, what i want to say in brief is it's it's very complex I see the vision of it as a positive but the problems come from the perceptions of it as 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 threatening to the western order and and also in the implementation which is which is problematic in in a lot of cases when you look at the detail it looks problematic so I don't know if that answers your question for now Yeah and uh, just commenting on Pakistan and uh, electricity that's no joke there was a, a really good Pakistani journalist that I had uh, twice Uh, attempted to do an interview with and they couldn't because yeah. electricity kept going out yeah. so i had to postpone and and i lived uh over a year for over a year in mongolia and the yurta and i absolutely loved it and you're right there uh, that's part of the charm for me of mongolia that there's no roads and you're just cutting yeah. through 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 uh yeah. gra grassland uh so yeah the um i, I was reading the first part uh, of your book on china and there was some interesting stuff where you said that No one has a monopoly on interpreting Bri, uh, not even Xi Jinping or the Chinese government. I suppose by that, uh, I think you just kind of briefly mentioned that you mean how things and projects go on to take a life of their own. They get politicized. They're constantly evolving uh, due to international dynamics, unforeseen consequences and changing needs. Yeah. And, and you call your approach to researching Belt and Road complex eclecticism, where the aim is to search for patterns in data, develop a suitable uh, explanation, and then return to the data to check to see if the explanation is supported i i think i sort of unwittingly apply that same uh, idea in my geopolitics uh, research uh, i mean is there any other thought that that you can add in terms of uh, interpreting belt and road i mean for foreigners as well as for native chinese uh, and so on trying to understand it yeah i mean the point i was trying to make with that is that you know clearly it's 
it's obviously it's a it's a sim, it's a it's an obvious thing or a simplistic thing or it's not not a not a very insightful point to say that it's complex. But I think we we shouldn't underestimate the complexity of it. And I, I think what I'm trying to say there is we should not look for for simple explanations of it. We shouldn't look for like a linear explanation. You know that if we just find the one defining factor that's just going to explain the whole thing, because I think there's a complicated kind of set of factors in there. There's economics, there's politics, there's environmental issues. There's, you know, I've been looking recently at the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which I've just written a a book on that. So the book is coming out in November. And I realized when I was looking at the China-Pakistan economic corridor, CPEC, that I was going to have to look at, you know, largely at Pakistan's domestic politics and Pakistan's domestic scene. Because if you look at the detail of it, the investments are all inside Pakistan. You know, it's 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 supposed to be a, an economic corridor linking Pakistan to China. But if you look at the projects that are funded, it's all projects inside Pakistan. So I realized that to understand it and the dynamics of it, I had to look at Pakistan's internal politics, which I before I researched the book, I was not really that familiar with, to be honest. But having having looked into that, you see that there are factors there like the role of the army you know the pakistani army is very strong in the in the domestic politics uh, they ha- they have a democracy but it's kind of a fragile democracy and it's it's backed up by these punjabi civil military elites with the military playing a major role so i, I just want to point out that you have to take it's not just about what beijing says and that's going to be applied there's a lot of kind of complex factors that come into it relating to the countries that china's investing in. And I'll just divert for a moment because I'm in the Czech Republic. So we've seen a similar kind of thing in the Czech Republic, which I know I won't talk about too much, but just to illustrate the dynamic that the Chinese came in in 2016 and said, we want to invest a lot of money and we're going to, we're sending in this private company, CEFC, to manage the investments and we're going to buy this football club and this other thing. And it kind of went wrong because because of two things. One thing was the, the 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 company CEFC kind of collapsed and was accused of corruption, and the, the head was arrested in China, and there's all kinds of problems with that, which is again outside the control of Xi Jinping. You know, there's some his agents let him down, kind of thing, so he couldn't control that. And the other problem was the Czech perceptions. You know, the perceptions from inside the Czech Republic and the Czech complicated Czech politics about who's pro-China and anti-China, and it all got, the debate became very polarized about it. So there's all these kinds of complex factors that influence the implementation that we, we have to take into account. So, so for, for my approach, you know, I, I, I don't want to summarize everything that's in the book, but basically I'm in favor of just, instead of looking at looking for just one factor that defines the whole thing, I'm saying, we need to take, you know, concepts from different theories or different ideas and just kind of put them together. With, as long as they don't contradict each other, I think we can put together different aspects, you know, such as interdependence, where we're talking about, you know, which is a liberal idea where we're talking about the complexities of trade and how countries are interdependent on each other, which we see with China because everybody's dependent on Chinese industrial production. We're all buying Chinese products, Chinese computers, phones, whatever. So there's there's obvious interdependencies of trade. But at the same time, we also have to look at questions, issues that are not liberal issues, they're more like 
what we call in international relations, realist issues, issues of power, power politics, real politics. It also influences what's going on. And, and also from the school of constructivism, we can look at questions of identity and how images are constructed and how we view each other. So all, all of this kind of stuff comes into it, you know, and it's, I think we shouldn't just restrict ourselves to one school, but we need to take insights from different schools in order to understand the, the, the thing more fully. Yeah, I like this measured uh, approach. I myself haven't, you know, firmly de defined uh, my own uh, opinion, and I, I kind of don't like what you see now. These these uh, commentators and books being published, uh, very hawkish from the West, basically yeah. saying, you know, let's have a w third world war with China, and then on the other flip side, you've got you, you know Westerners saying, oh, you know, the Belt and Road is super amazing and and all that. I'm just kind of a bit more reserved, waiting, as you say, like. Things are fluid and, and dynamic and, and just seeing how things uh, develop. Uh, I wanted to go back. You mentioned the, the B3W and you wrote about, um, I'm not sure if I got this right. You, you wrote about the idea that Belt and Road announced. So it was announced in 2013 um, at Nazarbayev Uni University in, in Kazakhstan. I also, I've spent three years in Kazakhstan. I, I visited the, that university a few times. Um, that it was possibly a reaction or response to Obama and Clinton's pivot uh, to Asia, which was announced in the early 2000s or in, in the 2000s. So this would be kind of ironic because uh, I think you write in the book, in your book, that the U.S. pivot was in reality a strategy that did not uh, really exist, at least not at the time, perhaps. And then we have in 2013, the Belt and Road announcement. And now it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, we're getting this pivot to Asia 2.0 uh with the belt and uh, with the b3w build back better mm. with the blue dot network and so um how do you kind of see um, the west response now to uh belt and road right uh, you know i think what, what what i was trying to say there with that with that um observation was that i i think in part the belt and road was was a response to what china saw you know i don't think the west saw it that way but i think china interpreted this Obama pivot to Asia with Hillary Clinton, they saw it as an attempt to kind of contain them and pressure them, right? And obviously the US is to their east and the US is dominant in the Asia Pacific. They got bases in Japan and Korea uh, and the Philippines. So they're obviously coming from the east. So China felt like they're trying to cut us off. They're trying to contain us. And, they, and I think in part, they looked at the map and they said, well, where is America? not dominant right and that's more to the west that's across the the asian landmass parts of southeast asia uh you know into central asia that's where more like a russian zone so maybe we need to do something where we kind of spread westwards so i think i, I see the belt and road as a, as a kind of westwards movement for china going going to the west because they see that the us is powerful in the east and there's nothing they can do about japan south korea uh taiwan is obviously a hot potato and so on right so so i think it, it, in part it was a reaction like that to to try to expand their influence to to the west um as as to the second part of your question about the 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 current situation the western response to the belt and road like i mean it's been around since 2013 or or if we if we take it that in 2013 nobody really knew what xi jinping was saying i think even to be honest, I think even in, in China, even among his own advisors, I'm not sure that they had any clear plan. 
And it, it took them a couple of years to catch up with it. So it's like 2015 where we start seeing official documents coming out about what it means. So if we take it from about 2015, uh, the West has had six years to react to it. And they haven't yet reacted in a coordinated fashion. You know, they haven't yet either said, well, we're going to try to cooperate with these Chinese initiatives. They're, they're saying, well, we don't really want to. We see it as a threat. But if they see it as a threat and they want to contain it, then they should be coming up with an alternative, right? They should be coming up with what what's our plan for the world? What are we going to do to invest in the developing world or encourage better, encourage better connections with the developing world, better relations with developing countries? Um, they haven't really come up with any coordinated. And when I say the West here, I mean, obviously, the U.S. as the leader but it's also about Europe, right? I mean, what, what is Europe doing? It's just kind of obviously there's various been various crises in Europe, like migration crises and other things, Brexit and so on. But it's like Europe has just kind of sat on its hands and said, we're not going to really get involved with this. So the U.S. has just the U.S. rhetoric has all been about China threat and the China's a threat to our order. And what do we do to contain China? And it's usually the solutions are usually like, military type solutions we need to beef up the military but they haven't done they haven't done anything from the perspective of developing better relations with the developing world with africa with, with the middle east with central asia with southeast asia they haven't done anything about let, let's say we have we have a coordinated program of investment here we need to invest in those countries. We need to show them that we we mean to help them, right? I mean, there hasn't been anything coordinated like that. I'm not saying that there isn't investment going into those countries. There is always investment going in in some forms from the West, but they haven't really packaged it. You know, they haven't packaged it and said, here is our vision. So nobody really knows what, what you know, there isn't any coordinated vision, which is what they're missing. And they would they would need to come in. And again, you know, people will say, oh, it's too expensive. We can't do it. You know, I don't think it, if you look at the amount of money the U.S. has spent on on the occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq, for example, I mean, it, would, it wouldn't even need to be that much money. It would only need to be a fraction of that money. You could start relatively modestly. You know, you could start with relatively modest sums just, just to, to show that you mean to help the developing world in some kind of coordinated fashion and get more friends in the in the developing world where if china is perceived as a threat then it must be a threat to the western order if china is getting support in africa or support in central asia or even in the middle east which was previously the us's kind of zone of influence so it's countries like i'm thinking of saudi arabia which has always been a us ally i mean the chinese are getting chinese need saudi oil and they're, they're, they're sort of making moves in saudi arabia what is the us doing in response i so far don't see any kind of clear vision for that, you know, um, let alone other countries which are seen as U.S. enemies like Iran, right? I mean, that's, so it's, it's another question. Um, so, so my point here would be to summarize that the, U, the West, the, U, uh, the U.S. and Europe in particular need to somehow put their heads together and come up with a coordinated vision. What are we, what is our plan for the world? We don't, okay, we don't like the Chinese plan. We don't want to participate in the BRI what are we going to come up with? So this is what we're waiting to hear about B3W and Biden has said they're going to sit down and, and thrash it out in the, this month or next month. But so far, we don't we still don't have a clear vision of what, what it is or if they're going to 
put any money into it or if there's going to be any kind of coordinated vision for how to work with these problems of development of, of developing countries plus the, the environmental issues that we, we face as a planet. Yeah, speaking of the Blue Dot Network and and well, I think they've refer, uh, rebranded it now to B3W. I think I've I've just been there's not much on it. I've just been seeing like press releases. Yeah. There's no talk really at all about it or or, yeah. or action. Uh, but I think as you as you mentioned, they, they focus a lot more on military and like the Asian NATO, the Quad. I think it was just today announced that in ten days on September twenty fourth, um, the Quad is going to have its first. Uh, in-person meeting uh, at the White House. Uh, so in about 10 days, I think um, their first meeting was virtual uh, a year ago. So they seem to be moving ahead on the military uh, security front uh, quicker than the economic development. Um, one of uh, Belt and Road's arteries is CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic uh, Corridor. Uh, you recently gave an interview to Nikkei uh, Asia, which I I saw you tweet. I, I retweeted it in an article where you um, discussing Afghanistan's desire to join uh, CPEC. And I was reading as well today an Indian intellectual C. Raja Mohan writes today that, uh, quote, the only real Afghan convergence is between uh, Pakistan and China, end quote. So, you know, what are your thoughts on CPEC uh, in general? I know you have the forthcoming book. I think it's going to be published in, in two months, I think in, in November. Yeah. And so what are your thoughts on on, on CPEC in, in terms of Belt and Road as well as, you know, the, the Afghanistan factor? Right. Okay. So the, the CPEC, like from, you know, I've looked into it in depth and the, 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 the problem I've had I, I, examining CPEC from the beginning, the reason why I even started doing it was because I, I wanted, I was really interested in this idea of, you know, China making a base on the Indian Ocean at Gwadar and China transporting oil up into China, you know, to alleviate the, the so-called Malacca dilemma, you know, of being maybe blockaded in the South China Sea or in the Malacca Straits and China improving its energy security by transporting oil through Pakistan. So that's really why I got into that, into researching that. But what I found is that you know, people will assume that there is now a pipeline or a railway or something connecting from Pakistan to China, but there isn't. I mean, there is still the same one connection across the border that there's always been, which is the Karakoram Highway. Uh, this is what a single road which was built in the 1970s with great difficulty. It's a very winding road around the side of a mountain. It's blocked off by snow four months in the winter. It's It's a very sketchy kind of connection in from China to Pakistan. So what I found is there is no oil pipeline being built. You know, there is no railway being built into China. It's not even on the cards. There's no there's no mention of it in the planet. Right. So then what is CPEC? And, and the only conclusion I can come to is CPEC as it stands in terms of the investments that are being done is just for the development of Pakistan. Right. It's, it's mainly about the development of Pakistan's energy production because as you said you know like before they have blackouts they have they have they don't have enough they don't have good energy supply so they urgently need you know better energy supplies and it's also about transportation i mean the majority of the investments going into pakistani energy production energy distribution and and transport so they're building this ml1 railway which is supposed to be an artery through through pakistan they're building roads they're building an airport at Gwadar. They're supposed to be improving Gwadar port. So it's it's about Pakistan's internal development as it stands at the moment. Now, the question is, like, is it going to be expanded? Is it going to become like a, a kind of regional hub and a regional, 
you know, connectivity project, including Afghanistan. Um, my answer to that at the moment, right, we don't have good information, but my answer at the moment would be I wouldn't expect Afghanistan to be incorporated into it anytime soon or, or very quickly, even if the Chinese and the Pakistanis come out and say, yes, we're going to include Afghanistan, I still would not expect the action to be very quick, you know, and the reason is because obviously Afghanistan is a huge risk, it's hugely unstable, um, the Chinese are not, you know, I'm going to just say this flat out, the Chinese are not stupid, they are very rational calculators of risk. They have watched Russia get bogged down in Afghanistan for 10 years in the 1980s, failed, lost a lot of money, lost a lot of uh, personnel, had to withdraw with their tail between their legs. And then they've watched the US repeat the same mistake, not for 10 years, but for 20 years, again, losing a lot of money, leaving with their tail between their legs, a lot of casualties, a lot of death, no, no profit from it at all. And the Chinese will, are not going to just rush in there and take huge risks. And, and, and we even have proof of this because there, there's a huge copper mine in Afghanistan, which is said to be the second biggest copper mine in the world. And the Chinese desperately need copper, you know, for industrial process. You need copper for producing computers and phones and you need copper wiring and so on. You need a lot of copper. So it would really benefit Chinese industry to get that copper mine running. They've already been involved in there for, since 2008. A Chinese company has had a contract to develop that mine since 2008. And basically nothing has happened. And the reason why nothing has happened is because of the security situation. The Chinese, if they cannot protect their personnel and they, they think there's a risk of losing a lot of money and, and also of having Chinese workers killed or kidnapped, they're not going to take the chance. They're not going to go in there. And if we look at the CPEC case, the problem with that recently has been China, bombings on Chinese personnel. We've seen Chinese personnel killed. We've seen attacks at Gwadar. We've seen attacks in other areas of Pakistan. And this has been a huge problem for the Chinese. The Chinese have said, Pakistan, it's your Pakistani army. It's your job to protect our personnel. We're not sending our troops in there. They, 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 they're not going to send their own forces in there. So they're relying on the Pakistani army or police to protect their personnel. And if they feel their personnel are not being protected, it's not only a problem from the point of view of protecting their people, but it's a, it's a huge public relations problem within China. You know, if, if the Chinese people see that Chinese engineers are being killed or kidnapped in Pakistan, this is a huge kind of image problem for CPEC. And it's an image problem for the Chinese Communist Party that they're not protecting Chinese people, that these things are going wrong and they're being attacked. So I, I would say in the short to medium term, they're not going to rush into Afghanistan. They would like to extend CPEC and BRI into Afghanistan, I'm sure. There, there are natural resources there that they, they would like to exploit and use. Uh, but if the security situation is not stable and having looked at the lessons of the past, I think they're not going to rush to, to link it in. And, and from the Pakistani perspective, it's also problematic because they have this very porous border uh, across to, to Afghanistan. They have a lot of problems containing separatism and terrorism there. Um, they have a kind of very mixed relationship with Afghanistan, a complicated past. I think they also are going to be careful about how involved they get with Afghanistan. So I wouldn't see it 
happening very quickly, although I wouldn't rule it out in the long run, but in the short to medium term, I think it's going to move slowly. And uh, just to drop down then uh, to Iran, you recently participated in a discussion at the Middle East uh, Institute on the China-Iran uh, deal, which you conclude is more of a mirage and a result of strategic uh, hedging. So what can you briefly tell us about the Beijing-Tehran uh, relationship? Well, obviously, that's that's one that looks really logical for both sides because you know, Iran is seen as a pariah state by the US and it's it's been heavily pressured by the US over the years. And obviously it was the Islamic revolution of 1979 where there was this uh, US hostages were taken in the embassy and so on. So this is a lot of, there's a lot of bad blood between the US and Iran. So Iran obviously feels itself rejected by the West, rejected by the US. So it's an obvious solution to go with China. For China, it's also an obvious looking solution that Iran has oil, Iran has a really good geographical position on the on the Persian Gulf. Uh, it would be really good to have for China to have bases there to 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 also to extend. It's also possible to extend from Xinjiang province in northwest China through Central Asia to Iran. They already have a train link that runs to Tehran. So it's, all of this stuff is possible. Uh, but again, the problem is the risk. You know, I mean, Iran again. How stable is it? It's viewed very negatively by the West. There's this problem of the the nuclear issue in Iran. Uh, there's this problem of you know how stable is the government. So the Chinese, again, as I say, they're not stupid. They're not. They're calculating risks. They're not going to put all their eggs in there. You know, as as we've we've seen publicized that they're supposed to be putting four hundred billion dollars into Iran. We don't see any sums of that size in reality going in there. There's some investments going in there, but at a much, much slower pace than that. Uh, it's, there's nothing. The $400 billion figure is one that's tossed around in the media. We we have the reality is we haven't seen any anything like those sums going from China into Iran. So I think for China, it's really good to have Iran on side. They want to be influential in Tehran, particularly since they see it as a vacuum. I think that the, the US has obviously rejected Iran. The West doesn't want to touch Iran too much. So it's a it's, a, it's an opportunity for them to be involved there. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a risk. And the other, the other part of the risk, as you mentioned, the strategic hedging part of it, is that China also needs Saudi Arabia, right? Because they need Saudi oil. Right, Saudi Arabia is actually China's biggest uh, oil supplier. Right, if you look at the statistics, Iran is a significant one, but Saudi is even bigger. They really need Saudi oil. They can't afford to alienate Saudi Arabia, and unfortunately, in the Persian Gulf region, Saudi Arabia and Iran are bitter rivals. They're trying to patch up their differences, I guess, but there's been all these proxy wars in Yemen, in Syria. You know, there's all these kind of. Uh, hidden conflicts between the two of them. Uh, they're, they're regional rivals for, for regional hegemony. And, and I think that's the other problem for China. If they go in too deeply with Iran, they, they risk alienating Saudi Arabia and then they risk that oil supply and they risk having this, this major ally. So they, they can't go too deeply in with Iran. So they, they, they are kind of hedging their bets and keeping some kind of influence there, but not going in too deeply and I, I would see it continuing like that and shooting over then uh 
to Europe, just to get your thoughts on, you know, what's most important for you in terms of Europe, uh, China. I think we're, we've, we're recently seeing problems uh, in Lithuania, where Lithuania kind of is like, uh, I think they, they kicked out the Chinese uh, ambassador. I'm not, I'm not sure. And then we see China trying to make inroads uh, into places like Serbia. I, I know they just, Chinese just built a bridge in one of my home countries of, of Croatia. Um, and I think there's this debate now of, where the EU is going to stand between, you know, Western hegemony and, and China. And I think EU is talking about, I think they call it strategic uh, autonomy, um, strategy or doctrine. Uh, I'm not sure. So, I mean, what's most important for you uh, when you, when you think of uh, EU and China? EU and China. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, such a complicated issue. If we, if we look at Central and Eastern Europe, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion of this 17 plus one or, or probably now we're back to six it's not really clear but we're maybe back to 16 plus one because lithuania has apparently pulled out so um you know there's a lot of questions about chinese influence in central and eastern europe is china dividing europe and all this kind of this kind of stuff i think for me i think this is all kind of overstated because the chinese investments in central and eastern europe are pretty slow pretty small scale I mean, as you said, they built a bridge in Croatia. There's some investments. They built a bridge in Serbia, too. Um, but there's other investments that have not really taken off like this. It's supposed to be a high-speed railway from Belgrade to Budapest. But this has got stuck in EU bureaucracy, you know, because uh, they're claiming that it, on the Hungarian side, because Hungary is in the EU, Serbia is not, right? So Serbia can do what it wants, but Hungary has to stick to EU rules, they say the EU decided that the tendering process was not done correctly when the contract was awarded to the Chinese company. So it has to be all reviewed. So that railway is all, you know, up in the air, not completed. Um, so I, I think the questions of Chinese influence in Central and Eastern Europe are, are kind of overstated for me. As, re as regards the whole EU, you know, it comes back to what I said before, where I think the EU has still really not coordinated or clarified its policy to China. It doesn't have a clear policy. It's had a lot of years to think about it, discuss it. I mean, I, I went back, I looked at this, for example, this cooperation on energy or energy security, and they have the EU published documents going back 10 or more years about how they want to cooperate with China. And they want to, 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 to coordinate policy on energy and the, the energy security but nothing's really happened. There's just documents on paper and there's no real there's no real action at all. So where we see at the EU level, a lack of vision, lack of coordination. The, the other issue is that the individual countries in, in a lot of cases, especially the most uh, powerful ones like Germany or obviously Britain is out now outside the EU, but Britain is also still a major player. These kind of countries are really coordinate, really developing their relations with China more at the bilateral level on their own rather than going through the EU. So what we see with Germany is we've seen down the years, Angela Merkel has visited Germany with huge business, uh, accompanied by 100 business people on not one occasion, but I think up to eight or 10 occasions she's, she's visited China. The Ger German business has developed very strong links with China. China's a very important market for example for german automobiles um, there's a lot of ties between germany and china which are really just being done at the bilateral level without coordination at the eu level right and britain obviously now is outside 
the EU doesn't have to listen to the EU. Britain's doing the same. It's developing its own policy with China. So what we see is, you know, I think the question is that China's often accused of divide and conquer strategies in Europe, and it's trying to divide Europe. I think the best way of looking at it is, um, you know, do the Chinese want to divide and conquer Europe? Maybe. But I think the, the better way of looking at it is the Europeans are doing a really great job of dividing themselves. You know, I mean, look, look at Brexit and, and what the Germans are doing and so on. And Europe is 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 not coordinated itself and needs to pull it, pull it, coordinate its own policies between countries. And then they would be stronger. You know, if they had a uni unified position with China, it would be they would be stronger together. But without doing that, it's really Europe that's dividing itself rather than the Chinese the Chinese are just coming in and looking after their own interests. So, you know, like every country does. And to get your thoughts, I don't know how well you've uh, researched the, the domestic economic situation of, of China and doing your Belt and Road research. We have this situation now uh, mm. with, the, with this bank, um, Evergrande, which seems to be mm. defaulting and some say will not be bailed out by the Chinese government and that it could be the China's Lehman Brothers uh, moment. And, you know, it could be a spark that lights the fuse of economic mm. collapse, recession, depression, not only in China, but around the world. I think uh, a century ago, we saw, uh, I think the Great Depression in 1929 began with the defaults um, of Austrian banks that kind of made a domino effect to the u.s and you know culminated in the great depression so um then we have this talk of you know the the digital the central bank digital currencies digital yuan so uh any thoughts on uh, the how st strong or weak the chinese economy is you know how mm. very precarious it is uh, your thoughts there yeah, I, I'm. I'm not going to go too deeply into that because I'm not. I'm not actually an expert in that, and there's a lot of other people that are studying that. I think better than me. I have to be a little bit uh, cautious about that. Um, the I've, I've looked at this Evergrande issue, and it, it is really serious. There's another report out today that it does look really serious. They're now saying they don't have enough assets to cover the debt. I believe the debt is something like three hundred billion dollars, something like this. And they don't have enough assets and there are people protesting in the office, apparently. So this is a really serious situation. Um, people have been talking about property bubbles and, and a sort of speculative bubble and the debt problem in China for years. Uh, and so far, we haven't seen that collapse coming. Of course, we don't. You know, it may come. It may be that, that that's the that's China's, you know, uh, financial crisis starting up. I, I suspect what the government will will they must be looking at it closely. And I think what they will try to do is somehow to restructure that debt. So I think if they if they think that that, that is becoming a real problem that's going to drag down the whole economy, I think they are, I think what we are likely to see is that they're going to step in somehow and take take action on that Evergrande issue and try and stamp it, stamp out the fire. But um as I say, I'm not an expert in, in, in the Chinese economy, so I'm, I'm not going to go into it too much further. But it is a major problem for China. And it could be something. It could be something really serious. And I think we surely are going to see something, some reaction from the Chinese government in the next week or two. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, there's, you know, um, China has does have this authoritarian system of. Uh, of uh, governance that includes aspects such as, you know, the digital censorship, the Great Firewall, and this dystopian social credit system. Uh, there's There have been many articles describing how um, people fear that China is exporting these autocratic systems uh, of surveillance, you know, w with the, their sale of 
uh, all kinds of you know routers and internet uh, technology to other countries. Um, what are your thoughts on whether China is failing to become more democratic? So it doesn't seem to be becoming uh, more democratic, and whether the West is becoming more like uh, Beijing. Do you have any insights uh, there? Well, my, my main insight would be that, you know, people in the West have been anticipating for years that China would become more democratic, you know, from, from the, you know, obviously from the Tiananmen, you know, demonstrated Tiananmen, the whole Tiananmen incident in 1989 and, and that, that where it looked as if China was going to democratize and it looked like it was going to be the same as Central and Eastern Europe throwing off communism. And then obviously it didn't happen and China went back to the authoritarian uh, measures. So I think the West has been anticipating the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party and democratization in China for years, and it hasn't happened. And I, I just, you know, I don't think it's on the cards. I mean, because the, the, the Chinese people see that the country is becoming wealthier, is becoming more powerful. And I think unless as we see with this Evergrande issue, unless the Chinese people feel that the Chinese Communist Party has failed and the economy is failing and the economy is totally collapsing, I think that would be then a different situation. We might see some severe kind of disruption or some kind of pressure for a new a new system. Um, but again, would it be a democracy? Would it be a democracy that arose out of it, a Western-style democracy? It's not really clear that that would be the case or you know, China doesn't have a, have a history with democracy, so it's something, a complete unknown for them. Um, you know, as, as regards to the West, is the West becoming more like China or more authoritarian? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think the West is still trying to, the West is still trying to stick to the same systems. And I think, you know, we see now with, obviously, the Trump administration was a kind of uh, anomaly, right? I mean, that was a kind of weird moment in u.s history i think with biden we see we're kind of seeing a correction and return to the normal processes i think the west is still trying to push its democratic vision its 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 liberal economic vision or capital whatever you want to call it capitalist vision for the world and it's it's still going to keep pushing that i think um as i say i just think the west needs to become more coordinated and have a better vision for how the world what what is their alternative to to a Chinese led order? Um, if there would be a Chinese led order, I mean, it's it's a big it's a lot of ifs in there. But I I don't see any kind of convergence between the systems of China and the West. And instead, I see like it's just just this big divide. There's this big. Another thing I'm keen on is this. We really need to improve communication and understanding across cultures because it's really okay, there are these political issues, there is these security issues, it's, it's, it's a very big real, polit real uh, politic type problem between the countries, but we really need to improve the communication processes and understanding of the other side, because I feel there's really poor, you know, there's really poor understanding between the two sides of, of the, the, the different points of view. And it's, this is impacting everything this is this is obstructing coordination and cooperation and is creating not just security problems but it, these environmental problems are just going untreated and the the global economic problems are also just kind of festering and not being not being solved so there needs to just be for for everybody's benefit there needs to just be somehow find some way to understand each other better and and 
if if cooperation is impossible, at least some kind of coordination where it's instead of clashes, zero sum clashes, we at least have some kind of positive sum way to live with each other, right? Uh, the sense I get uh, from you um, is that, I mean, you're more measured. So it's not, you know, the, the, there is something to Belt and Road. You know, I, some people have said recently that, you know, Belt, Belt and Road is dead, which I think is kind of an extreme uh, statement. I mean, I think there there are projects, there's money going, money flowing. But then, you know, it's on the other extreme, people hype it up, you know, like Belt and Road is going to take over the world or something. We had a century ago, Halford McKinder with his uh, idea of, of the world island, right? Eurasia. Uh, coming together and we have people today who talk about the dragon bear right uh, R- russia and china uh, coming together and uh, w- and we didn't really mention it in, in the interview now but just to get your thought on you know how how, do, how does eurasia fit fit into belt and road uh you know we have russia uh, the stands central asia uh, and then we have the eurasian um, union eurasian economic union we just saw belarus uh Pass this agreement with Russia to to kind of integrate, which it kind of seems like the first the the cornerstone of for from my perspective the cornerstone of Eurasian Union uh, integration. You know, Belarus, Russia, and maybe the other stands will follow. And I mean, wh- what are your thoughts on on the Belt and Road in conjunction with uh, Eurasia? That that again is a really good question. I mean, people are you know thinking about this Russia China alliance. I mean, I was just talking to some uh, some people about this yesterday, and uh, you know, they pointed out that Russia and China have, have been sort of driven together, right, by by mutual need. I mean, Russia's had sanctions put on it by the West. Where could it turn for like economic assistance? China was the the the, the main option. So Russia's been driven more towards China. China also needs Russia because it, it you know it, it, it's trying to develop influence in Central Asia and it, it's getting their oil and gas pipelines coming from Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan into China. So China's trying to develop its relations with Central Asia and doesn't want to alienate Russia. But what they pointed out yesterday is that Russia and China still really don't trust each other, right? I mean, they are, they are on board with each other at the sort of a, a formal alliance level, but it is there's still undercurrents of mistrust in there. They don't, they're not fully committed to each other. So I think this idea that a Russia-China alliance is going to take over the world is, or take over Eurasia is, I mean, maybe Eurasia, if they can maintain the alliance, but that they would work closely together or really trust each other, I think is not, is not going to, is not going to happen. I mean, that's, that's, uh, uh, and we see this even from, you know, data that I've looked at, or one of my colleagues did interviews with with Russian experts in in Moscow and with some Kazakh e- experts. And there's, you know, there's there's not only mistrust in Kazakhstan of the Russian intentions. There's also we have to say mistrust in Kazakhstan of Chinese intentions. And there's a lot of xenophobia in Central Asia. I think there's still xenophobia in in Russia. They're all worried about being flooded by Chinese or being taken over by the Chinese. So there's a lot of mistrust on each side, and it's 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 quite complicated. And the 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 question of Eurasian Economic Union, as opposed to Belt and Road, or whether Eurasian Economic Union, which is Russia-led, can be coordinated with the Belt and Road Initiative, which is China-led. I think there's, as we've said, there's problems with Belt and Road. There's also problems in the Eurasian Economic Union. I just saw some story where that there's some problems in there in, in the internal level that it's it's. It's a, there's a feeling that it's just a, a Russian attempt to dominate 
Central Asia again. And it's not just like a, a sort of return to the past rather than a genuine opportunity for Central Asia. So there's, there's all these undercurrents of mistrust and and so on, which which I think impede that the, the cooperation. So I, I, I don't think we're going to see a kind of Russia-China. I, I mean, I think it's working remarkably well that the situation is pretty peaceful in Central Asia and everything is running fairly smoothly. But I, I don't I think this is kind of optimized already. I don't think it's got any further to go, you know. And I'm just going to make a joke here. Having myself lived in Kazakhstan, I think probably the the Kazakhs are skeptic skeptical of, of their own Kazakh government uh, as yeah. well, let alone the Russians and Chinese yeah. uh, uh, too. That's true. Uh, do you have any final thought uh, to leave us with? Well, I, I just did. The final thought I'd want to leave us with is, um, you know, I, I, I see, see in my field so many people focusing on security issues, so many people focusing on this U.S.-China rivalry or the, or the Russia-U.S. rivalry and the military issues and security issues. I wish we would also focus on other types of security issues, I, the, the environment and, and the economic problems. I wish we would focus more on how we can learn to live with each other and overcome these differences if not out of not out of love or mutual respect or anything like that, but just out of mutual need, right? Because we 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 are living in a world that's where we see a lot of global warming, we see a lot of uh, uh, potential for economic collapse or collapse of our systems. And I wish we we could get to a situation where people are going to say, "Let's coordinate the policy. Let's understand that we don't trust each other." Okay, we don't trust each other. We we fear each other, but let's try to just do what we can to coordinate for the benefit of everybody without, you know, without giving up military secrets or, or, or in, you know, undermining our security apparatus or something. But let's find ways in which we can cooperate and, and produce benefits for, for all humanity rather than just thinking about these zero-sum games of uh, security issues. Yeah, I guess a, a more win-win uh perspective you're on twitter at jeremy underscore garlic there's your book on the belt and road initiative and your forthcoming publication on cpec uh, is there any other website or, or project or, or book that we should know about no i think you covered it i mean uh, you know you can also look at my ac uh, page on academia.edu that, that where i've got all my publications are, are, are there on there and even some videos that i've done so uh, i think you covered it pretty well all right. Yeah, I'll include all the links in the description. And so Professor Jeremy Garlick, find him on Twitter and on Academia and check out his books for some really great insights into China's Belt and Road and the region. Thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, 
leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.